Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hey, Barry, good morning. How are you doing? I am doing very well this morning, Michael. How are you? I'm How are you doing? doing well also. Thank you very much. Also, thank you to everybody who is maybe watching this on YouTube or listening. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about Michael Miller's 2020 article, Platforms of Control, Social Media, and the Limits of Theoretical Pluralism. Uh, so the very brief. Well, let me talk briefly about what we're going to do before we get into summarizing. And not to interrupt your flow, but let's uh, just give um, a little bit more data about sure. uh, Michael Miller's article. Just mentioned that it's in a special issue uh, with a lot of other smart folk of the magazine uh, of the journal Simploki. Uh, and you mentioned it's a 2020 article, so you can find it very easily uh, if you have access to a Project Muse database. All right. Uh, so the plan today is going to be to just talk briefly about the article. Um, he really has uh, just a couple of key points that we want to dig into. Um, the first is that uh, capital T theory uh, is utilized as social capital as opposed to the actual theoretical content and arguments. Um, follows us up with the argument that this move uh, to use theory as social capital uh, forms a, or functions as an anti-intellectual force, essentially. Um, and his third point that I, I mean, I find all these really interesting, actually, but this one I really thought was kind of a smart move on his part, is that the end result here is a form of moral superiority or what he calls, and I think, Barry, this is one of my favorite terms, uh, progressive punitivism. Um, you want to have a T-shirt with that? Progressive I, I, punitive. I, 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 I'm being progressively punitive. Um, and then uh, he finishes with a very interesting conclusion that you and I are going to take a shot at responding to. Um, so just briefly, his article is talking about a he, he, he centers his argument around a 2018 book by uh, Lexi Freeman called Inappropriation. Mm -hmm. And right. as he, I have not read the book, but as he summarizes the book, you have um, characters that are teenage characters in the book who basically read theory and use this theory as a means of building social capital or social credibility, intellectual and ethical credibility. Through their online activity, through social right, media. Right. So and this so, is how, and, and we see how social media um, uses theory as memes or ideas or as a mode of communication. It becomes an online discourse. I didn't mean interruption. No, you're fine. Um, and so I, I think that's that's probably as good a place to start as any, right? That okay. that the idea here is that we are talking about theory not for the arguments in the theory so much as for the way that that theory um, presents us in terms of how others see us as a social capital. And so I think the best way right. of going through this is to just read a brief blurb from the article that, you know, concisely states his argument, and then we can respond to mm -hmm. that. So, okay. Uh, but you know what? It, it struck me. I am going to interrupt your flow just to do one thing because it might be helpful to our readers, viewers, listeners. We don't have readers, but we have listeners and viewers. You know, before we do that, you know what just occurred to me when you were talking about theory? Uh, there has to be at least a few people who don't know what the hell we mean by theory. Note that I avoided, avoided the F-bomb there, so I'm doing well better. Done. I'm doing much better. But you, shouldn't we just sort of see, if we, and I think this will be an interesting sure. exercise for us as, as a sort of, and a, as a sort of a, a, a opening gesture. When we're talking about theory, it struck me, it strikes me that, you know, you had this one, was it one word term, theory, but when you, Examine it. So if, if you had to explain theory, what theory means to people who don't study theory, who don't study literary theory or literary criticism, 
you realize that that word theory is combining a lot of different things. Like, for example, it's this grab bag. So now I'm going to try to define the term and you're going to help me and, and sure, you're sure, going to sure, keep sure. on doing it. So part of the issue, part of this, I, I think it's worth before we talk about Michael Miller's arguments, great arguments on the subject, it might be worth pointing out to everybody and to ourselves how strange theory is because what is theory okay originally theory literary theory meant almost exclusively literary theory mm-hmm. and even in literary criticism so there was a lot of stuff about the art of writing and uh, and artists practitioners uh, artist critics like Henry James or T.S. Eliot would be part of the camp canon of theory. Now that's almost entirely dropped out of this modern meaning of theory. And it's this weird grab bag of really political positions. I think when we use theory, would you agree with me? And I think I think we kind of need to clarify this to talk about the the discourse that Miller is uh, is trying to, you know, he's talking about the social effects of a particular discourse. I don't think it hurts us to talk a little bit about to try and pin down this very confusing heteroglot discourse, because it is very confusing. Doesn't theory mean, not necessarily what Henry James said about writing, it used to, doesn't necessarily include that. It could still in a literary classroom, if you're, do, if you're teaching that course or exposed to that course in an English department, it could include what writers say about writing. But basically when he's talking about theory and when Lexi Freeman is talking about theory, it seems that it's mostly talking about left politics, not just politics, political thinkers, but seriously, a kind of quasi-Marxist, crypto-Marxist, normative Marxist. Well, I, so. Politics, what do you think? So I I think that, I I think I agree with you, but I'm not sure. You don't have to uh, when agree we talk with me. about. I, I'm just trying to figure out. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what theory is. So when we talk about theory, my initial response to your question, when you say what is theory, my initial response yeah. to that was, well, I would argue that theory is the philosophical understanding or explanation or questioning that would explain the real world events or the real world thought processes that are going on. And I think it's important to distinguish in this instance, especially Mm -hmm. because of where you're going, Mm -hmm. the space between a theoretical and a real, what I just called a real world thing. Okay. So Mm -hmm. this is the, Mm -hmm. the philosophical why behind whatever the subject at hand is. And I think that the difference in terms of politics, the leftist politics versus maybe a more conservative political eh, um, words, uh, positioning here, are the result of the fact that theory is really the business of education, higher education. And higher education is the home uh intellectually i think a lot of of a lot of the leftist politics so theory is the language that the left would use to explain the actions of people perhaps uh i think that if you take a more centric or conservative view of what this mm-hmm. uh of, of, of these explanations they become much less philosophical and um I think this is maybe a dangerous word to use, but maybe more pragmatic. And so, which is the, a, which is a key word for a key word and and another key word for Miller in the essay. I don't think we're going to talk too much about his engagement with pragmatism because we're we're mostly going to focus on media. But I mean, you bring it up, and you're right to do so because Miller kind of goes there in other parts of his argument. Yeah. So in in terms of the the so I guess to 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 sum up my answer here in terms of the political implications of theory mm-hmm. uh i i would i would root it in philosophy which is okay. certainly more left-leaning and it's unfortunate because it's not to say that all philosophy leans left 
or leans liberal. I just think that this is the language that has been appropriated by the left tends to be more academic. Um, and mm. that's why I think mm. the politics of theory lean left. And I think that I think that that covers us for what Miller is doing. Okay. I don't know. What do you well, think? Well, uh, I, I like that last point. I'm going to rephrase it. I, I want to get on to the, mm. the essay itself. But just one more uh, digression that I hope isn't too much of a digression. Um, would you take this as a fair, I'm, I'm building on what you just said, and I want to know whether or not you would take this as a fair amendment or a fair conclusion to be drawn from what you just said, because you are identifying very interestingly, you're identifying um, a sort of tension between applied politics or activism. As I understood it, what you were identifying is that in contemporary theory, mm -hmm. There seems to be a tension, struggle, contradiction. Those are those last two might be loaded words, but let's just say at least a tension. Maybe it's a productive tension between activist politics, activist conceptions of politics that might that tend to be in the academy, um, controlled by the left or or motivated by the you know leftist politics. Activism might mean leftist activism usually, and. The other key word you use that I think is really important, philosophy, mm -hmm. that there's a tension between. So theory means philosophy. It's about being able to give your rhetorician uh, a rational account of the world, your motivations of art. It's being able to break down arguments into components and to arrange uh, the components of argument and discourse. So maybe there's a, is there a tension, do you think, when, you know, is one of the reasons why theory is a hot button, I will just invoke critical race theory and the um, political, intellectual, aesthetic, social confusion that that term raises uh, in our home state. But, uh, and I'm not going to go there, but just to invoke it, is there a tension between the philosophical component of theory and the activist component of theory? Maybe, it, you know, and th that perhaps is, one of the foundations or one of the core reasons for the, the the situation that Miller describes or I I think that the answer to I, give me a minute and what I mean by that is I think that's a phenomenally well-placed question in the sense that the the answer in terms of Miller is coming in just a second. So let me read his blurb. Let's go there. It talks Let's about so so the there. first point is 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 he talks about theory, uh, capital T theory. I guess he would also call this strong theory as opposed to what he refers to as weak theory later in the article, as a social capital. Okay, mm -hmm. so he says theoretical discourse today takes place online, on social media platforms then how come these digital spaces provide plenty of opportunities for us to register our differences with each other, but no way to work through or even theorize our disagreements, either online or off? It is important that one is seen by others on social media platforms referencing publicly to particular theorists or texts because such visible acts of reference are meant to signal, signal exactly where one's theoretical and thus political commitments lie. And so what he's arguing here is that by broadcasting our knowledge of a particular theory. theory, we align ourselves in a given way. This is very different than actually invoking and engaging the theory. Okay. And so is there a difference between the philosophical component of the theory and the activist version of the theory. And I think if we're talking about social capital, absolutely. Because one thing that the philosophical aspect of theory invites is dialectic, right? The ability to engage. Whereas the activist version of theory politically uh, really seems more about social positioning. And so I think that's how I would answer that. one of the that's, that, that's a love. That's a lovely answer. And, you know, um, let's put a couple more words or add a couple more words to the word dialectic there. Uh, productive philosophical disagreement would have to 
include dialectics, which means it has to include difference, dispute, yes, yes. Uh, disputation. In fact, a, I, a force of a negative force to go along with the positive. Yeah. In fact, I would say its very existence is predicated upon right. an right. oppositional force. And it's not so much. Again, I think it's important to realize that the goal of this theory is not to be right. Right. The goal of this theory is to explore what is and then to make space for options or positions uh, that might complicate the initial theory. This is what I think Miller is arguing gets lost in the social activist application or shall we say sort of, you know, takeover of theory. So an interesting thing occurred to me as I was reading this, and I'm, I'm going to serve this to you uh, to see what you want to do with it. But, you know, it's it's no secret to anybody who who listens to us. We are Marshall McLuhan fanboys uh, and McLuhan very. <laughs> there it is. Um, you know, the medium is the message or the medium is the message right here. The medium. So uh, here the medium is, look, I have theory, right? Theory is the medium. Miller is arguing essentially that the message then is is what like what is the he, this is this well, is the so message is the message is interestingly because the message as Miller shows uh, the message is circulated in two ways it's uh, circulated I I don't think Miller doesn't invent this term but he uses it and if we were smart we would know who invented this term but we'll have to. We'll have to add that in another episode, but he uses the term uh, data exhaust. So one of the ways in which we broadcast our message or the medium of theory, when theory, theory becomes social mediatized, one of the things happens is we volitionally, we, we start positioning ourselves by affiliating with others. So we start using memes that show our affiliation and show our identity. And then there's this unconscious, you know, the data exhaust comes in there because the data exhaust, the trace of our online activities, what we affiliated with, what we liked, what we disliked, what we loved and what we hated. That in turn sort of that, the data exhaust in this particular case, in these particular cases, ends up reinforcing the general uh, picture that you try to inscribe through your likes and dislikes. Because in other words, it gives a permanent record. The data exhaust is the permanent record of your likes and dislikes. So one of the things that social media does to theory is it turns it into a performance, an online performance. And online performances, as we all know, is, is gauged by likes and dislikes, by sharing, by circulating certain messages that people respond to, and then they in turn create their own digital traces of those likes and dislikes. And then there's this huge exhaust, you know, the all this many traces that show you, that demonstrate to the world, to the online world at least, that you, Michael Rapici, have the right political positions. Is that, I don't know, that may not have been that illustrative. No, I, I think that actually makes quite a bit of sense. Um, you know, one of the things that I keep coming back to as, as we're talking about this and the the the, um, the social capital aspect yeah. of, 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 of the application of theory. Um, so he's talking about a novel, right? Right. And his the characters in the novel can do as ever, you know, however Freeman right. wants them to do. Um, right. I want to take this offline for a second, not fully offline, but just an application of this. And I, I'm sure you see this all the time. Uh, I certainly saw it all the time. But this point about theory as social capital is mm -hmm. probably the most elegant explanation of graduate school I've come up with yet. Right. This idea that being able to invoke a particular theorist at the right time in response to the right circumstance uh, is the great job of posturing by students who are under pressure to feel that they should know everything and need to align themselves as the good 
or worthy student. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying this. I'm not saying this to demonize uh, the 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 people who do this because this is ever. I mean, this is rampant. This is how this is how that dance is 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 enacted, right? It's all about being able to present yourself in graduate school as worthy or as being a part of a discussion. Um, I don't know how this functions amongst, you know, teenagers or early 20 somethings in, in the book, because I've not read the book, but I found, I think this is part of the reason why I found this so incredibly compelling because I think that it is simultaneously, and this is actually going to maybe transition us into the next point about this being anti-intellectual, but I think that it's so counterproductive because Mm -hmm. what happens is it becomes a reductionist cycle where Mm -hmm. instead of actually engaging, we're now learning Mm -hmm. about theory. And I use learning sort of, you know, loosely here, Um, learning about theory in terms of where and how it contextually, as opposed to uh, the content of it, right? Like, oh, we're supposed to talk about Marx when we have class struggle, and that's going to be what that is. Or we're going to talk about, um, you know, identity in terms of, you know what 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 the internet might do, but I'm not going to be able to have those discussions in in other places. I I just I really found that compelling, and it 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 is. And uh, do we have just a moment to linger on that? Because I I really like the points you're bringing up, and I, I wondered if we could uh, maybe uh, nuance just just a moment, absolutely, uh, for 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 a minute or two. So let me add when you were describing the situation of the uh, um, graduate student in graduate school, uh, invoking theory, promoting theory, trying to accrue social capital. Let's add the P word to all of this. And adding the P word is going to make it clear, because I, I, I sense, I know your motivations and my motivations in talking about this is not to say, oh my goodness, people are posturing. I think all posturers should be shot. No, 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 um, no, no, not we're at trying, all. We're, I, know, I, know, I know you do. So I think we need to add the P word to this. Um, the reason why people are posturing, let's add another P word. The reason they're doing that um, online and also in real time uh, graduate classrooms or graduate seminars is because they want to look professional. Exactly. And to be professional, I mean, that's what graduate school is. It's professional school. And there is an element of people become professionals to get real effing capital. But also uh, professionalism has, you know, ever since Thorsten Veblen, um, we, you know, we have realized, economists have realized that there is a kind of social value or social capital that comes with the accruing of economic capital or, or earning that, getting a credential that allows you to get a lot of economic capital to amass capital. And so posturing is kind of the stock and trade of anyone who needs, who wants to become recognized as a professional or an expert. And online now, and and this is what I wanted to go to, because you you made a fascinating distinction between, you know, online posturing and say graduate, you know, real world posturing. And so the online posturing, I guess the question I wanna ask you, Michael, is, is the online posturing, is it different in kind from the professional performance to professionalism in graduate school? Or is it kind of the same thing? Um, for example, the online person uh, who is trucking, is trying to trade up, you know, trying to accrue more social capital by citing the right texts from Karl Marx or Antonio Gramsci. Um, is that person different in kind, in type, in species from the graduate student who is name dropping uh, a theorist or is it, is it the same thing or is it different because it's online? I think it, okay. Here's the least satisfying answer I can give you. I think it's it both. It's no, neither. I, even better. It depends. <laughs> it depends. Right. So I think if you look at um, graduate school for a moment, what you have there in, in an ideal world, uh, all the participants in that little dance recognize that the students in the classrooms are unfinished projects. And the purpose of that education is to learn how to wield the theory 
and the right, ideas. Right, right, and right, there is right. a pressure to be at the front of that classroom when right. in reality, um, being in that classroom, you've already you've already cleared the gates, right? Somebody has said, hey, you write well enough. Your GRE scores are this. You convinced enough people in your undergraduate degree that you're smart enough to be here, right? So you've already cleared those gatekeepers, yet there is this social pressure to not be the idiot in the room. Despite Dr. The Michael fact- Rapici, the major scholar of Pierre Bourdieu, that's the quick, quickest and most beautiful summary of Pierre Bourdieu I've ever heard. Well, I'll tell you, so, so, so like one, that, one that, of, that was a brilliant point. That's thank, a brilliant I mean, and, and I'll tell you, like just from personal experience, one of the most liberating things that I ever did in a classroom was say, I have no uh, insert F-bomb idea what we're talking about here. This makes no sense to me. And you know what? The sky didn't fall down. And Contrary to being the idiot in the room, I looked around and realized that none of the other students had any real idea either, right? So I think the problem in the classroom is that you have essentially, uh, it's a training area, okay? Now, if we pop this online and say, well, what about that? I think that there are situations where it is a very similar scenario, right? Are we yakking about what should be done or what might be done. We're not creating policy in this situation, right? We're talking about what might be, right? But what complicates this, I think, is when you have professionals in a given field utilizing theory as social capital to legitimize their position. This is a little different. In the graduate classroom, you have people who are in training to be experts in a particular place well that's right that's great whereas yeah online there are no gatekeepers right like to get into that classroom you have to pass through certain checks uh all you need to be active online is an internet connection or a wi-fi signal and suddenly you can be anybody and so i think that's why this is you know the subject of her book is is not academics it's it's kids as i understand kids. again right um because there's i think more room to play with this and you can elevate yourself higher above your the others in that virtual space right. because it's so open um right but i think it would just depend i mean you know if we god forbid we saw our politicians talking about stuff they don't understand using language they don't really have control over, that's a real problem. Um, mm-hmm. Because what you see there are people who are simply unqualified to do this. And I think that um, otherwise it's it's maybe a, 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 you know, social media becomes a pretty decent facsimile for for the classroom. Mm-hmm. Shall we move on are to the we second ready? point? Are we ready to take the McLuhan-esque turn? I think we are. I, I, let, let's go for it. So uh, <laughs> I, I think the, the next... The next thing that he brings out, and I think we've 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 walked to this point, uh, is his argument that what this appropriation of theory in the name of social capital creates is a moral superiority, a sense of superiority, um, what he calls progressive punitivism. Um, so let me let me read his little blurb here. And then we can go. I'm actually going to, Barry, I'm going to jump a sentence or two up to give a more complete um, contextual backing here. But anyways, he says, contemporary iterations of weak theory slash neo-pragmatism or anti-theory thrive on social media platforms where passions run hot and complex, complex argumentation is rare. What is more, the proponents of this anti-theoretical program often argue openly on digital platforms that the wider epistemological utility of their position derives from their own personal commitments to political liberalism. The problem with this position is that its strong commitment to liberalism causes it to commit two crucial mistakes. The first is that, one, it confuses moral arguments for theoretical ones, and two, Even though pragmatism's anti-foundationalism explicitly rejects viewing theoretical claims as inherently political ones and vice versa, neo-pragmatists and weak theorists nonetheless make the mistake of trying to ground their epistemological claims in a liberal, democratic, political, but really moral, foundationalism. Weak theorists seem to be more concerned with the mood, affect, and style of argumentation. So, And and against 
the idea that um, and relinquishing the idea that uh, argument should be grounded in strong convictions or a priori foundations or something like that. A yeah. priori beliefs. So, so let's 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 sort of take apart some of his language so that we sure. can. Have yeah, a I think we. I, as you were reading it, I thought we we probably should gloss some of these terms. Right. So when he talks about weak theory, how do you understand that? Weak theory isn't well. I, I was trying to do that, and I did it briefly just a moment ago. And I don't know that you you're going to need to help me, but basically, weak theory is a kind of anti-foundational theory, meaning that um, it's not about it doesn't make appeals to capital T truth. It's not an argument based in the convictions or absolute truth claims made by the writer, but it is more, to use the word, pragmatic. So uh, it's more situational I, in, I, uh, in its claims. I understand weak theory, put simply, to be what happens to theory when it is used as social capital. So this is... I think there are two things. Well, uh, let me br bring that together. I've, and this allows us to uh, at least gesture toward a part of Michael's essay that we, we, we don't really have time to talk about here. Um, he's doing two things at the same time. It gets a little bit hard. I, I was sort of struggling with this and you tell me if I get this right. It seems like he's making two, he, he's noticing a problem in philosophical theoretical discourse. And that's what we just talked about, weak theory. When philosophers appeal to weak theory, as opposed to other philosophers, um, they tend to erase difference because they also are pursuing an anti-foundational position on truth, or they're, they're avoiding questions of truth and foundations of knowledge and addressing the situation. Now, that's one kind of weak theory. And as I understand it, Michael's saying there's an analogy for weak theory. That weak theory is all you get in social media platforms because right. of the re precisely because of the reasons you just said right. that the reason you get weak theory is that everybody is posturing. What was your term for social capital? Everybody right. is maneuvering for social right. capital. So that's so contemporary iterations of weak theory or anti theory thrive on social media platforms where passions run hot and complex right. complex argumentation right. is rare. So essentially, what he's saying is that this use of theory for identification purposes right. stri strips right. it of its depth and of its nuance right, right. these become the, the these be <laughs> these become uh, the dupe uh. the, they become the duplo box blocks of lego right like instead of the little legos that you can do wonderful cool things with these be theory becomes duplo it's just these big clumsy I signify actually that's the great analogy. That's a great <laughs> analogy. I okay. love that. So he says the problem with this position, <laughs> with, with the Duplo position, is that its strong commitment to liberalism causes it to commit two crucial mistakes. It confuses moral arguments for theoretical ones, right? Sure, How sure. can you have a theoretically nuanced argument when this is grounded in some sort of individual or moral position? Right. Exactly. There is no foundational, right. Right. you know, as you said, a right. priori right. position to make this work. And the second one is that uh, to, um, make the mistake of trying to ground their epistemological claims in a liberal, democratic, political, but really moral foundationalism. And this is where I was saying part of the problem with the capital T theory is that it is philosophical. It is the stuff of the ivory tower. And as such, it is highly nuanced and and very, very uh, what's the word I want to use here? Um, well, it's complex. It's complex and and it's allowed to be. And let me add some of that. It's allowed to be complex, right? Well, you can you, you it, it's allowed to do its own work and it, it complexifies rather than comes, you know, ties itself up in a neat bow. That's OK. In this particular situation, well, the, yeah, the, 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 the structure the, allows it. The complexity is part and parcel of the theory, right? That's the purpose right, of the theory right, is to have the complexity. Right, so right, yeah. the the argument that he's making here is that it we we strip it again for social capital. So when he uses the term, oh God, where is his term? Um, progressive punitivism. Okay. Um, 
my my take on this uh the progressive refers to this liberal or leftist mindset right and the punitive uh, the punitivism excuse me is essentially a moral high ground right that i am and the moral high ground takes a, a very specific technological form of shaming of shit posting or s posting well i, I that's the term go. maybe maybe youtube will let, let us slide um of s posting of you know there's a particular um there's a formal component to what you're talking about more it you know it's a moral discourse that has a computerized an analogy right it has a computerized form an online form so that that's the other thing that's happened here it's kind of this amazing thing that moral positions achieve uh, attain a kind of material um this is a this is a kind of awe-inspiring idea when you think about it the power of technology that um moral positions in a way gain a new kind of i mean they're still abstract but they're a kind of they gain a kind of concreteness here because i like you i dislike you i s post you i so i can literally signify give a formal uh, um, uh, come up with a formal signifier of my inner self, of my inner purity. Well, it's because they're they're socially ratified, right? Right. And so what what happens is you 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 neatly divide the world into two camps, right? There's the us and them, the right and wrong about it. He he finishes this up, and I think this is probably the right time to move to this. Um, I'm going to read the last four lines of his article and then the footnote that accompanies it because i think this is an interesting place uh to, I, I think this is a good place to do that um to, 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 and actually let me let me go last six lines pardon me does the pragmatic performance of anti-theory on digital platforms paradoxically provide an outlet for antagonism theoretical or otherwise or rather as the techno-social apparatus of control does progressive punitivism and its proximity to the performative logic of homophily generated social capital suppress the healthy functioning of antagonism in theoretical and political life? So um, let me read. He, he footnotes that. I think we'll read the footnote and then we can unpack what this means. And I'm, I'm trying to read slowly. Um, so hopefully um, uh, this is this is lucid. Another way to put it would be to ask if progressively punitive techniques such as calling out and shaming would be so popular or successful if they were only interested in calling out conflicting theoretical positions as opposed to making sweeping and ennoble claims regarding a speaker's innate moral character. So he, he finishes here by basically looking at the practice of public shaming um, as a means of both identifying one's own position, but then- And as a natural as a natural outcome of the dynamics he's been describing throughout. Like, you know, it's, I, I think the reason why these, these descriptions come at the end of the piece is because he feels he's explained to you how the system works. And now you can see why shaming and uh, calling out why these rhetorical online rhetorical strategies, why they are so common, why they are so prevalent. Right. So um, what what's your take? I mean, he ends with a question, right? As a techno-spatial apparatus of control, does progressive punitivism and its proximity to the performative logic of homophily generated social capital suppress the healthy functioning of antagonism in theoretical and political life? So in other words, does this idea that we are aligned with the left and therefore morally superior and the closeness of that position to essentially the echo chamber that people will identify with a particular position mm -hmm. does that suppress the healthy functioning of antagonism in theoretical and political life so let's start here barry how is it mm -hmm. that antagonism is healthy mm -hmm in theoretical and political life. Well, you explained you explained that earlier when you said that there's a necessary in order to have philosophical discourse and I think this is Michael's I uh, Michael's idea as well. Um, in order to have philosophical discourse, 
as opposed to moral posturing. You have to have a dispute with difference. You have to have an encounter with the unlike. You have to have an encounter with some sort of otherness. And so without that's, that's I think, what he means by negativity and antagonism. I think he means he's talking about that in the broader sense of a fundamental difference that your discourse can't erase. Moral discourse erases otherness all the effing time. Philosophy, as a discourse, tries to accommodate that difference or antagonism. So that I think is, so I, I think uh, to answer Michael's rhetorical question, I think he's saying for all the reasons I've shown you, no, um, you cannot have a moralistic discourse that eschews, avoids, brackets off antagonism uh, and expect it to be philosophical. So, so is that, is, is, am I? It is. What, I what, think, do you, what do you think? Well, I, I think you're right. I think there's an interesting wording here and an interesting tension uh, mm -hmm. between two mm -hmm. words in particular. Mm -hmm. He talks about the healthy functioning of antagonism, right? Mm -hmm. Have we conflated shaming with antagonism? I well, that's interesting. Uh, here's my take on this. It may, it may be different from yours. I think that when he mentions shaming and uh, the... I think the footnote's doing something slightly different. The footnote, and I and I appreciate this. I think this is a brilliant insight on Michael's part. As I read the footnote, what he's doing when he brings up shaming and uh, what, what's the other phrase, Michael? The technical term calling out. Did he use this calling out? When he, I think the reason this this is why I appreciated the footnote so much. I think what Michael is doing in the footnote by drawing attention to these online practices, I think he's also explaining why they are still popular. I think they're grounded in affect. There is a kind of joy we get when we enter this kind of moralizing universe. Um, and we enter this kind of moralizing. The reason why people do this so frequently, um, I, I think Michael would say, I, I certainly would say that there's a pleasure principle behind it. There's a kind of joy that comes from saying you're bad. And, you know, I, I'm able to call, I found an error in you that you couldn't see. I especially like it when, you know, and it's especially effective when, when they say, oh, you know what? It's not just that Michael Rapici said something offensive. Everything Michael Rapici, I mean, the ultimate shaming is, it's, it's not just that Michael Rapici said something wrong on this occasion. The wrong thing that he said on this occasion shows the utter decrepitude of all his uh, utterances since he, you know, crawled out of the cradle. If he I did was, that, yeah, right? You know, so, I, I was helped. So there, there, I wasn't even crawling. So, <laughs> so there is a so there is a performative element to it. There's an effective element that keeps this these elements of online culture going and i think the other uh, yeah, i think i got lost i'll stop right there i got lost on the on the answer to the first question but i i do want to sort of i think one of the important oh i remembered it to compress or to briefly summarize my take on the footnote footnote he's talking about the effective the reasons why humans are motivated to participate in this culture and why we do it uh joyfully. Now, getting back to the point that he's making and that you were making about the conclusion, my read of it, my takeaway, Michael, and I'm, I'm going to throw it back to you on this. My, um, my takeaway on this is that one of the reasons for, you know, what does it mean practically in the online world to not engage with antagonism? We talked about one thing, you know, one, one way in which that, that avoidance could be performed. But there's another way. You can just, uh, I mean, I think Michael in that last paragraph seems to be talking about and trying to explain siloing our media silos. So one way we avoid antagonism or difference is by, and, and we do this through by the moral posture, by, by antagonizing somebody else and excluding somebody else from our community. My ties to you, if you're in my community, they're strengthened. 
And there's no antagonism in our relationship. In fact, the antagonism was all extruded, right? It was all projected out there. So, so the function of antagonism is just to other the other. It's just to disagree with the person you disagree with. Uh, the antagonism is still in this excluded because there's no antagonism. It's implied. You and I agree that the other person is shite, right? Yeah, I think that what happens um, when you when you basically distill this down to two camps where there must be a right and a wrong is you, right. end, you, you end up with a Hatfield-McCoy kind of situation, right? right? right. Where you, are, you, you cease to be terribly critical of your own side because all of your energies are focused on identifying the gotcha moments. Exactly. One exactly. of the things, so my, my, my takeaway from this, right? If I look at his footnote, my, my summary of his footnote is his question, uh, maybe more simply stated is does the, does the public or the publicity uh, of the online communities encourage shaming, you know, in the name of being morally superior Right. Uh, and then he asks, uh, would we still do this if it wasn't so visible or might we actually engage in dialectic? And I think that my answer to this is that, yes, unquestionably, the visible nature of the online engagement and the moral superiority that we get from invoking weak theory um, is it, it's a sugar hit, man. Right. Like I'm it's a better sugar hit, right. But it also the problem is one of the real things that keeps us away from dialectic is, man, that's a lot of work. You have to understand the nuance. But no, think about it. Right. If we get if you think about all of the discussions that we have, what is the one defining characteristic? Here's McLuhan, right? The defining characteristic characteristic of our technological advance is speed. Right. And it is just simply easier and faster oh, to you're rubber exactly stamp right, yeah. theory. Say, look, yeah, boom, I'm right because I know this word. You're I see wrong. where you're going. And and so, you know, the the idea here is yeah. that I, I I can do that. I, I can with weak theory enables me to move quickly, to valorize one thing and demonize another. Um, and again, because I have my little army of of people who agree with my position. I'm good. Right. And it's, it's all about that last word, right? Because if you have the last words, you win. If you are the person on social media who gets shouted out, you lost. So here it yeah. is. Here's my yeah. last word. That's it. So yeah, I agree with no. him. I, I, I think this was a, so there's my, so what? Um, I, I think he's right. I think this is really interesting. I think it is a um, kind of surprising indictment of liberal politics from a member of the left. And I'm pleased to see that because I think it invites discussion. It invite, because it invites discussion. You know what? I, I think um, this is a good place to end, but let me uh, tie up one loose end because we were invoking McLuhan. You, you invoked McLuhan again at the very end. We should, I, I think we invoked, we had several, at, at several points, I at least, you know, did my celebratory fanboy thing. So, oh, this reminds me of McLuhan. But I don't know if we really said why we find McLuhan uh, appropriate or why we're, why, why Michael, who doesn't cite McLuhan, but why we were kind of returning to our readings much, of McLuhan and in our discussion. Huh? Much, much to his shame. I should say. <laughs> I, w I wasn't going to go there, but I I'm going to try to sort of, uh, Michael, you're going to help me. Um, but I'm going to try to summarize why we were why we were invoking McLuhan so at at, at certain points in in this episode. The reason why is because um, uh, the construction, as I understand it, we feel that McLuhan's big argument is that form uh, the new media form. Uh, changes the content, right? Or the content is less important than the new media form. Um, new media forms collapse or or uh, collapse content, form content distinction in different ways. So in this way, the actual online medium creates a new content. They think, everybody thinks they're doing philosophy or theory, right? Mm -hmm. But what they're really doing is this moral performative stuff that is enabled by the technology. It's a moral performative um, 
behavior that's enabled by the medium itself, by the technology of social media. Yeah, I mean, is that, is that right? Absolutely. How do you explain Heidegger on Twitter? Right. Right. You right. just right. you don't. And, and and but but yet you invoke him on Twitter and now you have position yourself and, and that's the media. A brilliant example. Yeah, that's a perfect example. All right. Well, listen, Um, as we sign off here, I want to say a couple things. This. If you got thoughts about this, if you have opinions about this, if you think that Mr. Miller or that either of us is completely wrong or right, uh, I, I think this is absolutely the kind of discussion I would invite any and all of you listening or watching to please partake in. Um, you can certainly drop a note in the comments on the YouTube video. You are encouraged. Please reach out to us through the uh, website has the email. It's critical media studies podcast dot uh, com. Email us there. Uh, the email critical media studies podcast at gmail.com. You email us there. Let us know what you think. Uh, if you loved it or hated it enough to leave us a good review, that'd be fantastic. Um, so yeah, that's um, help. Can, let's continue the discussion with this one. I would I would love to hear uh, from those of you guys who are listening and watching. I think this 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 shouldn't be a conversation that dies. And it goes without saying, but we'll we will of course say it uh, that if you have ideas for things that you know that might be for readings that are in line with, um, I think we've been doing this enough that people can get an idea of the kinds of things we affiliate with and talk about. So if you have suggestions about that for new possibilities that you would like to hear us discuss, or that you would like to uh, contribute to the discussion in some way. You know, let us know. All right. Well, Barry, thank you. I enjoyed this one and um, talk to you soon. A lot of fun. A lot of All fun, right. Michael. Thanks Take again. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com. Thank you.